Well, good morning. To those who I haven't said good morning to already, um, for those who've been around over the last few weeks, you'll know that we're in the middle of a series looking about what it means to be fully alive. And I want to begin today by thinking in the context of which our relationships take place here, 21st century Britain. I'd suggest to you the first reality of the context in which our relationships, we do our relationships, is that we live in a divided society. We are in a divided nation. I think if you read uh, social analysts, if you read political analysts, whether you read from the right, whether you read from the left, or whether you read from the center, people would agree generally that we are divided. We're divided on partisan lines in all sorts of different directions. Whether we talk about Brexit or those who don't want Brexit, whether we talk about racially, whether we talk economically, whether we talk educationally, whether we talk about the gender issues, whether we talk about how we were educated, whether we talk about the age issues in our society, or which part of the country you come from or came from, actually, all those things have a capacity to divide. One of the consequences of that is that what we end up doing is we end up gathering together, huddling together in looking look-alike communities. And we sort ourselves by people who are like us, for example. The people who live in the right postcode. Those who live in BA1 clearly are in the right postcode. The vicarage happens to be in BA1, so I'll say that without kind of any... Oh, I've offended some of you already. Look at you. Yeah. Kind of, but you know what I'm getting at. The work you're at, the people you do leisure with, the, where you live. We, we gather ourselves around people who are like us often. And part of the reason that is, we, is that we find that we are divided. We're divided on social issues. We have very big differences of how we see what, things that, what is moral and what's not moral. We have a different view maybe of what, what, uh, how we view immigration, how we view the environment, whether we, what we think about global warming, about what we think the status of marriage ought to be or ought not to be about what, what role the state takes in our lives, about the importance of social care, of health. We have an enormous number of issues in all sorts of life, an enormous difference of opinions. We are a divided nation. But I'd also like to argue that probably more than any other time, we are also very isolated. Just a few years ago, and actually over the last few years, a huge number of studies have been done about isolation and the effect it has on our lives. One of the issues with people who get isolated is that there's a, a huge number of people. There was something like up to 25% of the population, and some of the studies that have been done have said that, that nobody of those 25% have nobody to turn to with any of their personal challenges, their personal problems, or their personal issues. They don't feel confident enough to share what's really important in their life with other people. And they become isolated, they're lonely, and they're separated from others. 
And that one of the consequences of that, as part of some of the research, says that one of the consequences of being isolated is that it's fundamentally unhealthy for us. Being, uh, being constantly isolated means that you're constantly on a state of alert. You can never relax. If you're lonely, you're on high alert the whole time, which ultimately destroys your health. Here are some of the statistics in one particular study. Isolation is associated with a 29% increased risk of heart or angina attack. Isolation is associated with a 32% increased risk of having a stroke. Isolation is a potent cause of early death, same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Isolation is twice as deadly as obesity. Isolation increases the risk of dementia, high blood pressure, alcoholism, and accidents. In short, we human beings were not designed to be alone. The individualistic, kind of isolated mindset that many of us adopt, that in many ways covers many of our values in Britain, in which deep relationships, face-to-face -face contact, with real people who actually care about us, are interested in us, dare I say, would listen to us, leads to an isolated approach to life that literally kills us. So in that context, painted a pretty bleak picture, how do we do good relationships? How do we find life in our relationships? And I want to talk about becoming relationally alive. Let me pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your love for us. You know the deepest needs of our lives, our minds, our bodies, our souls. Nothing is hidden from you. Father, would you help us to grow in healthy relationships? You understand our brokenness personally, corporately, in St. Swithin's. Father, would you take us from where we are to a healthier place, to a life-giving place, not just for ourselves, but for others and for the parish and for the world. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've got your Bible open in front of you, we're going to go through this passage uh, in Philippians 1 where Paul is writing. And the context is this, is Paul is writing uh, for, for looking for a relational healing in this, in this congregation he's writing to. There are two prominent women in this community, Euodia and Syntyche, who are members and co-workers with Paul in the church here in Philippi. And they were quarreling with one another. So, for example, if you move on in Philippians to Philippians 4.2, it says this, I plead with you, Euodia, and I plead with you, Syntyche, to be the same mind of the Lord. And their dispute, as you read the book and you read all the commentaries, not just has been a dispute that's affected them, but it's also gone to affect the whole community, the whole church community. And Paul points to two things. I'm going to talk about two things that destroys relationships and then four things that help us have healthy and good 
relationships that Paul points to in this context of writing to the church in Philippi. Firstly, the relationship destroyers. In Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The first relationship destroyer will be no surprise, is selfishness. The second is vain conceit, which literally could be translated empty opinion. So firstly, selfishness. Paul is talking here about the me first attitude in this community. And almost in every single broken relationship, you're going to have at least one of the parties, if not both parties, who have adopted a me-first attitude to life. It's all about me, self-centered. Eugene Peterson, one of the great writers, I think I quoted him uh, last week, but he's written a book on discipleship called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And one of the things he says about our culture and about the, the prevalence of selfishness is this. He says, at this particular time in our culture, our culture encourages and rewards selfish ambition without qualification. We are surrounded by a way of life in which betterment is understood as expansion, as acquisition, as fame. Everybody wants to get more for themselves, to be on top, no matter what it is the top of. And that's the thing that's admired. Now, there's nothing new about the temptation to selfishness. Nothing new in our generation about that. It's the oldest sin in the book. It's what Adam got thrown out of the garden for and Lucifer tossed out of heaven. What's fairly new, though, in our particular time, is a general admiration and approval for selfishness that, we re that it receives. I remember I... Uh, when I was 18 or 19, I was idealistic, I was a Christian, I wanted to make a difference. I went to see the GP, I'd volunteered at the last minute to go and work in Argentina, in a flood relief um, area of Argentina, to try and help some very poor areas there uh, with a mission agency. And I remember going to see the GP, I was fired up to make a difference, to do some real, something to make a difference to people in real help. Sat in front of the GP, looked for advice, and he just looked at me in the eye, and, and just looked at me in the eye with sort of semi-pity, and said, you need to look after number one. You need to look after number one. That's what matters. Wow. My bubble was burst. The opposition to the me-first attitude we see throughout Scripture. <clears throat> and what do we see if you, look, if you look through the Old Testament, for example, is if you get to look at, for example, Abraham. Abraham and his adopted nephew, Lot. Abraham's employees were fighting with Lot's employees over the grazing land for their flocks at this time. And how did Abraham resolve this dispute between two people who were warring. This is what it says in Genesis 13, 8 to 9. So Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. 
If you go to the left, sorry, if you go to the left, although that was the left to you, uh, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Rather than me first, <clears throat> Abraham said, you first. I will defer to you. Relationships grow when we defer to the other person. We're not driven by our ego. We're not driven by seeking power. We're not driven by getting control of the situation so that we are in charge, but are willing to let you go first. Now, here's a spiritual discipline for you this week. When you're driving your car in Bath somewhere, will you let someone out in front of you? When you drive your car this week in Bath, will you let someone out in front of you? Or will it be me first? There's a tide coming against me and I need to fight to make sure I get what I want. Or... I say this as someone who's mildly introverted, so apologies to those I'm about to kind of uh, put half of you in one particularly. If you're a big extrovert in life, what about this week? Rather than talking to somebody a lot, actually listening. There's a spiritual discipline for you, a real spiritual discipline. If you're a big extrovert, why not think about listening to someone this week? If or what about for some of us, if we're in a conversation with someone at work or you're in a conversation at home, what about if you put this down and put this out the way and give somebody your attention, your full attention? What about that as a start of a spiritual discipline saying, you first, the person I'm with matters this week? Not me, but you. Secondly, um, relationships are always destroyed by empty opinion. Vain conceit can literally be translated as empty opinion. I wonder whether you've ever argued with anybody. And as you're going through the argument, um, you really realize that you had no basis for the argument you found yourself in. You don't really have a basis for the opinion you're taking. You've just adopted a certain position because, to be honest, it's a position of somebody you like or someone you respect, or it's a position of your parents, or it's a position of whoever, whoever, whoever. You haven't really actually thought it through. You don't really have a basis for it. But it's the opinion of the group or the people that matter to you. You identify with those people. And this group of people value that opinion, and I'm going to take it don't have a basis for it, but you're going to take it. Empty opinion. Is it not pride? As someone who used to be very argumentative, I've had to repent a lot and continue to have to repent a lot. I used to be quite an argumentative so-and-so in my 20s, or earlier than my 20s even. I've had to do a lot of repenting to get to the point where I'm a little bit more open about that. As someone who's a dyed-in-the-wool Yorkshireman who likes my own opinions, sometimes we need to lay those down and admit that we don't actually know 
what we're talking about sometimes. We don't. We may have lots of opinions, but do we actually know what we're talking about? Do we actually understand it? Have we grasped it? Have we wrestled with it? Do we know and do we care what we think about, but also what someone else thinks about? Or have we just stubbornly dug in? I wonder, and I say this as someone who is tempted in this direction and finds it challenging at times, how many arguments would be ended by people simply saying and acknowledging them, well, actually, do you know what? I don't actually know very much about this. I really don't remember. Maybe, maybe you're right. So why do we move from that brokenness into something that's a bit more hopeful, a bit more um, holy, a bit more positive, a bit more constructive? Here's where Paul goes in, in Philippians 1.27. I'm going to talk about four things about how we heal our relationships. Firstly, we need to hold on to the gospel. Philippians 1.27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Now, how does Paul bring healing to these two women who've been uh, battling and have been, uh, and have been disagreeing and it's infecting the whole community? How does he bring the warring factions together? What does he seek to do to enable to bring healing to something that's broken? Paul doesn't do what actually a lot of people in our own society currently do, which is to look for lots of techniques, lots of different ways of going about it, although there's value in that. Paul actually goes right to the heart of the issue, of all disputes, in fact. And he says this, and it's a failure to hold on to the gospel. They're failing to, failing to grasp that it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that has saved them. Remember, Paul went everywhere through the Roman Empire preaching the good news of Jesus. The message that God's long-awaited kingdom had broken into the world in and through this person, Jesus of Nazareth. And this was the fulfillment and the climax of the completion of the story of Israel. And it was in and through Jesus' life, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection as his ascension, then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and his promise of his future return, that everyone in the world who turned to Jesus in faith and repentance would find ultimate salvation from everything that keeps us in bondage. All the sins, all the darkness, all the addictions, all the evil, all the fear, all, all the anxiety. He came and sent his own son to set us free. And Paul went everywhere announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. That God had done everything in his power to put right what was wrong in the world. And this is good news. God has done everything necessary to set us free from all the powers and all the things that continually corrupt and ruin our lives. And you can receive this good news by turning to Jesus in repentance and faith. So how does that heal our relationships? 
How does that good news make a difference to our relationships? Well, the gospel at its heart recognizes that I am a person who is lost. I'm a person who is broken and I need a savior. And that the only way that God could save me, the only way that God could save me was to send his own son to come out of heaven, to enter earth as a vulnerable child, into a poor family, to become a refugee, to be betrayed, to be rejected by his friends, to be mocked, to be crucified, and nailed to a cross. He took the bloody, excruciating, painful and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, to save me. When I reflect on that, when I reflect on what the gospel says about me, actually, that I'm not as put together, I'm not as wonderful as sometimes I'd like to portray or even imagine, what the gospel says about me as a person, namely that God loved me so much God loved me so much that he sent his only son so that I could be reunited and a friend with God. That's how much God loves me. That's how much he loves me. That he sent his one and his only son to save me, to rescue me, to to show and to demonstrate his love for me. Then as I think about that, as I think about the gospel, it changes my own heart but it also changes the heart, my heart towards the person I'm battling with. Because he did that for me, he also did it for the person you're fighting with. If God did that for me, that's also what God did for the person I'm battling with. Secondly, embrace your newfound citizenship as a Christian. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Most of you will know, but some of you know not, the Bible, the New Testament, part of the Bible is originally written in Greek. And the word that's con- uh, translated here in the NIV version of the Bible you've got in front of you, it conduct yourselves, literally means citizenship. It literally means to have one's own citizenship or to have one's citizenship or a home in a city or in a country. So why does Paul, it's only used twice I think, why does Paul use this word in this particular conflict when he's talking about this conflict between in this community? And it's this, is if you go back into the history of Philippi, you'll find that in Philippi was a place that very many Roman soldiers settled. These people were all proud of their citizenship in Rome. They were highly patri- patriotic. And the Apostle Paul reminds them, these highly patriotic, patriotic Roman citizens, of the truth of where their real citizenship as a Christian lies. In Philippians 3.20 it says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying if you're a Christian, if you've turned your life to Christ, then your most important citizenship 
is no longer where you were born or how you were raised up or what nation you are. Your most important allegiance is to the kingdom of God and to Jesus Christ as Lord. To call Jesus, is to do, to call Jesus Lord is to do life Jesus' way. How does this heal our disputes? What's Jesus' way of life? Well, in place of holding a grudge with someone you've disagreed with maybe for 50 years, maybe for 30 years, maybe for 20 years, maybe for 10 years, instead of holding a grudge, Jesus calls us to forgive. In place of vengeance, Jesus calls us to show mercy. In place of hatred to the the person you're at battle with currently in your life, Jesus calls you to love. What would it do to our church life if in all our dealings, all our dealings, especially for those we will disagree with about different things, to say about yourself, I'm a new creation. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the Lord of my life. I'm going to approach this dispute, this division, with whoever it is the way Jesus calls me to and Jesus wants me to. Thirdly, uh, Paul calls us to accept the love of God in, in, verse two, um, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. We bring health to our relationships by personally collecting to God himself that makes a real difference in our lives. I'm afraid it's not just going to be good enough just to come to church and try and be a nice person. You'll find that's too difficult. It'll be too difficult to do that with the people that you're with. So you can't give out what you don't have. When God calls us to love our enemies, that's a love. That's a love that you can only find with a heart that's been transformed by the love of God. We can't give encouragement to someone when we ourselves are utterly discouraged. We can't comfort someone else if we ourselves are longing to be comforted, we're in so much pain, so much darkness, we've been broken by so many things, we're so exhausted, we're so burnt out, we're so irritated continually, we can't give compassion. You can't give what you haven't got. We can't unconditionally love like God loves us unless we know his love for us too. Now, all of us uh, recognize this morning, and I hope you recognize too, that all of us are in need of encouragement. We need to be affirmed. We long for approval. It's a part of our human condition. We want to be cheered on in our jobs, in the work we do, whatever else it is. We want to be uh, encouraged in the efforts we make and to be in the kind of the people that we are. And there's a deep human need within each of us to be affirmed and to be approved of. But can I ask you, who is ultimately going to meet that need for approval 
and that need for encouragement at the deepest level of your life? Where are you going to find that level of approval, that level of affirmation, and the level of love that you need in your life? See, the thing is, however much applause your friends or your families give you, how much praise you take from being brilliant, whether it's kind of your work colleagues or whatever else it is, however much applause, praise you get from those around you, what you're in most need of, and I'm most need of, is the affirmation and the approval of the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. What we all need at the deepest level is, well done, my good and faithful servant from Jesus himself. All of us need to be approved by Jesus. And all of us will have places in our lives um, as we are praying where we know that we're wounded, hurts that we've been dragging along since we were children, We've dragged them along into our adulthood, into all our relationships. Places where we've been rejected, we've gone through pain, sometimes unshakable, unspeakable pain that we suffered. Wounding words, grief and loss that's affected our life over, over generations, over decades maybe. But we won't reach that place of finding comfort to fix and heal that from other people, however lovely and affirming and approving other people are. Only God the Father, through the work of his Spirit and the gift of his Son, can bring that healing and that comfort to one of our lives, to our lives. Then lastly, in verse 5 of Philippians 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. How did Jesus heal the broken relationship that existed between God and us? All of us can say that we've sinned against God. We owed God a debt that we couldn't pay ourselves. To heal that relationship, God decided to pay our debt himself. This is always that's required for the healing of a relationship. Someone has to pay the debt that's owed. Someone must bear the cost when things are broken when things have gone wrong. If you break a lamp in your house, I can make you pay for it if you broke the lamp in my house, or I can forgive you the debt, or I can bear the cost of the broken lamp myself. This morning, as we meet together, what would it look like if you and I lived according to the example of Jesus? What if we said, according to the enormous debt that Jesus has forgiven me, of everything that I've ever done wrong and ever will do wrong, that he's forgiven me. Will I forgive the small debt that someone else has done to me? Am I going to choose the way of Jesus and forgive? How many relationships might be healed? Hold on to the gospel. Embrace your new citizenship. Accept God's extraordinary love for you this morning. And we're called to live according to the life and example of Jesus. That's what it takes to become relationally alive. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your extraordinary grace that means that we can stand here today or sit here today in all our vulnerability, all our weakness, all our hopes, all our dreams, our longing for healthy relationships. Heavenly Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fall afresh on each one of our lives. That for those this morning who are deeply struggling to find approval from everything around them, would you reveal yourself and they long to hear your voice of love in their own lives. Father, I pray that they would turn to you in repentance and faith and find a God who comes to them and says again, Come to me, my good and faithful servant. And Father, for those of us who, as we think about our relationships, can see the tension in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and Father, we recognize we need to see healing. Father, would you pour out your grace afresh in our lives this morning? Will we stop accusing everybody else to be the reason for all our broken relationships and take responsibility and say, Lord, I need your grace so I can be the person who brings healing to those around me. Forgive me for what I've done wrong. Forgive me for my pride. Forgive me for my selfishness. Forgive me when I've just spoken too much without knowing what I'm talking about. Would you heal my relationships? I pray, Lord, this morning to make a start again to those that I know are broken. And ultimately, as we move towards communion, would we find strength again in the person of Jesus Christ who came that we might have life and have it to the full. In Jesus' name, amen.